Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. This week, we're traveling through picturesque Maine. Now, there are no shortage of towns made infamous in horror throughout the state, most of which I'm sure you've at least heard of, or maybe you're even intimately acquainted. Towns like Derry and Castle Rock, for example, maybe Chamberlain, Chester's Mill, or even Little Tall Island. The problem, though, with planning a tour through any of these main landmarks, none of them are real, all fabrications of one of the most prolific minds in modern horror. Love him or loathe him, it's hard to argue that Stephen King has almost single-handedly put Maine on the horror map. And if you're anything like me, you know more about the fictional towns than you do about those that actually exist there. So many of his stories are set in Maine, and even though you can't walk down the actual streets of the fictional towns, the inspiration King's drawn from real places in his home state means you'd no doubt find many of the real towns eerily familiar. But as much as I'd love to take a town-by-town tour to map out some of those sites, we've got a specific destination in mind, the town of Sabatis. Keep your eyes peeled. The details of the exact location of our destination are a little sketchy. We're on the lookout for an old barn. Okay, not just any old barn. There are plenty of those in this neck of the woods. What we're really looking for is what's behind the barn. An old abandoned cemetery that hides a deep, dark secret. At the bottom of a crumbling stone well. Back ten or so years ago, as the story goes, a group of young friends were out wandering the fields and forests around town. School was out for the day, and they were in no hurry to get home for the evening. Running, playing, and adventuring, cutting trails through the tall stalks of ripening wheat, and hacking away at leaves with tree branches for swords. Wandering through the trees behind an old barn, that's when they stumbled across it. A long row of raised earth, covered in forest growth, and at its head, a crumbling stone that looked too flat and smooth to be natural. Looking closer, there appeared to be scratch marks, too, the weathered remnants of writing. And as they began to explore the area, they realized there were more mounds and more stones. It was a cemetery, no doubt about it. Spooky, for sure, 
But there's comfort in numbers, and at their age, the fear of being labeled a coward by friends was greater than any fear of the dead place. They continued to explore, dusting dirt and dead leaves from old fallen gravestones with the swipe of a shoe. And then they saw it. Wordlessly, all eyes turned at once to the same spot at the far end of the cemetery. A stone ring crossed by rotting remnants of a wooden cover. They approached the ring hesitantly, each step heavy in the mossy earth. They stood around the ring, peering down. The exuberance and energy of their earlier play shadowed by a thick sense of dread. The boards were spongy and rotten, fragile enough that all it might take is a slight breeze to send them tumbling and clattering down into the inky depths below. It's a well, one of them said, cutting the silence like a razor. And then, when nobody answered, I dare you to go down there. It was a question thrown out to no one in particular, but it sent a collective shiver skittering down every spine gathered around the stone ring. No one spoke. No one raised a hand or made a move for fear of being volunteered. And then someone else spoke. I bet we could get Jake to do it. Shoulders relaxed. The dare had been diffused. For now. The kid we'll refer to as Jake wasn't part of the group of friends, but he so desperately wanted to be. He had been new to the school at the start of the year and had tried almost every way possible to work his way into the little clique, much to the annoyance of most of its members. What better way to make him earn his way in than a terrifying, if not impossible, challenge? And Jake took the bait. Several days later, the group was gathered once again around the yawning mouth of the well. A round, surprised O, oh, now that its broken board teeth had been removed. In the late afternoon shadows of the forest, the blackness seemed to scream up at them, in surprise or in fear. One of the kids had brought a long length of thick rope, and another had found an old tire beside the barn. They'd tied the rope carefully around the tire, testing and retesting it, to make sure it would hold. They were curious about what was down the well, and they wanted to give Jake a scare, but they didn't want anyone to get hurt, either. Jake nervously danced from foot to foot, silently weighing his fear of the unknown darkness below and the much more familiar fear of loneliness and rejection from the kids who now stood around him. With the other end of the rope tied to a tree, and its length held tightly by each member of the group, the tire was lowered just over the edge of the stone ring. Before hesitation could set in, Jake swung one leg over the wall, and then the other, sliding in to sit as though in a tire swing. Hands shaking, he swallowed hard to calm his nerves, and next thing he knew, he was being lowered down into the damp, cold darkness. The afternoon shadows were already long in the forest, and the gradually shrinking circle of light above him provided only dim illumination. The rock walls were rough and clammy, and he had to shield his eyes as small pebbles and dirt rained down on his upturned face as the rope slid against the stone. Up top, the kids lowering Jake down grunted and staggered. Jake was a small kid, but even still, his weight, plus the weight of the tire, were heavier than any of them had expected. But they were laughing, too. How had they convinced Jake to do this? No one had really expected him to go through with it. Not really. The rope in their hands shivered and vibrated as Jake bumped against the walls. See anything down there? They called to him, and they could just make out the sound of him mumbling echoing back up the shaft. 
but whether it was to them or just to himself, it was impossible to tell. And then suddenly, the tension on the other end of the line changed. It didn't go slack or lessen. It didn't jerk, either. It just became steady, rigid, as though the other end of the rope had become stuck, firmly anchored in the rocks. They called down to him again, but heard nothing. No mumbling, no sound of the tire or Jake bumping against the well. Any mirth that was left quickly faded from their faces, and the kids began to frantically haul on the rope, pulling it, and hopefully Jake, up to the surface and into the fading afternoon light. It seemed to take forever, the rope feeling as though it had stretched, grown infinitely long. But finally, arms aching, the top of Jake's head emerged above the lip of stone, followed by the rest of him, clinging as if for his life to the tire, knuckles white and muscles strained, his body vibrating with soul-deep terror. It only took one look to realize that something had changed about Jake. Not only was he perfectly silent, but his hair had turned white as bone, and his eyes, that had always seemed so sad and hopeful, now shone with the dark, crazed feverishness. It seemed to them that the boy that went down had emerged, after only minutes, an insane, weathered old man. They were able to pry him off of the tire, and half-dragged, half-walked him back to town. And soon after, Jake was committed to the county mental institution. He's never spoken about his ordeal in the well. In fact, he's never spoken at all. He just sits, swaying and babbling incoherently, with occasional screaming bursts of gut-wrenching terror. Now, I think it's time we fall down a dark hole of our own. Let's hear some fiction. Our first story for the evening comes from H.P. Lovecraft. Howard Phillips Lovecraft was born in 1890 in Providence, Rhode Island, where he lived for most of his life. He achieved posthumous fame through his influential works of horror fiction. He was virtually unknown and published only in pulp magazines before his death, but is now regarded as one of the most significant 20th century authors in our genre. Among his most celebrated tales are The Call of Cthulhu and The Shadow Over Innsmouth, both canonical to the Cthulhu mythos. Lovecraft was never able to support himself through earnings as an author and editor. He saw commercial success continually elude him, partly because he lacked the confidence and drive to promote himself. He subsisted in progressively strange circumstances in his last years and died in poverty in 1937 at the age of 46. Join me for H.P. Lovecraft's The White Ship, first published in The United Amateur, November 1919. I am Basil Elton, keeper of the North Point light that my father and grandfather kept before me. Far from the shore stands the gray lighthouse above sunken, slimy rocks that are seen when the tide is low, but unseen when the tide is high. Past that beacon for a century I've swept the majestic barks of the seven seas. In the days of my grandfather there were many, in the days of my father not so many. And now there are so few that I sometimes feel strangely alone, as though I were the last man on our planet. From far shores came those white-sailed argosies of old. From far eastern shores where warm suns shine and sweet odors linger about strange gardens and gay temples. 
The old captains of the sea came often to my grandfather and told him of these things, which in turn he told to my father, and my father told to me, in the long autumn evenings when the wind howled eerily from the east. And I have read more of these things, and of many things besides, in the books men gave me when I was young and filled with wonder. But more wonderful than the lore of old men and the lore of books is the secret lore of ocean. Blue, green, gray, white, or black, smooth, ruffled, or mountainous, that ocean is not silent. All my days I have watched it and listened to it. I know it well. At first it told to me only the plain little tales of calm beaches and near ports. But with the years it grew more friendly and spoke of other things, of things more strange and more distant in space and in time. Sometimes at twilight the gray vapors of the horizon had parted to grant me glimpses of the ways beyond, and sometimes at night the deep waters of the sea have grown clear and phosphorescent to grant me glimpses of the ways beneath. And these glimpses have been as often of the ways that were and the ways that might be as of the ways that are, the ocean is more ancient than the mountains, and freighted with the memories and the dreams of time. Out of the south it was that the white ship used to come when the moon was full and high in the heavens. Out of the south it would glide very smoothly and silently over the sea, and whether the sea was rough or calm, and whether the wind was friendly or adverse, it would always glide smoothly and silently, its sails distant, and its long, strange tiers of oars moving rhythmically. One night I spied upon the deck a man bearded and robed, and he seemed to beckon me to embark for fair, unknown shores. Many times afterward I saw him under the full moon, and ever did he beckon me. Very brightly did the moon shine on the night I answered the call, and I walked out over the waters to the white ship on a bridge of moonbeams. The man who had beckoned now spoke a welcome to me in a soft language I seemed to know well and the hours were filled with soft songs of the oarsmen as we glided away into a mysterious south, golden with the glow of that full mellow moon. And when the day dawned rosy and effulgent, I beheld the green shore of far lands bright and beautiful and to me unknown. Up from the sea rose lordly terraces of verdure, tree-studded and showing here and there the gleaming white roofs and colonnades of strange temples. As we drew nearer the green shore, the bearded man told me, of that land, the land of Zar, where dwell all the dreams and thoughts of beauty that come to men once and then are forgotten. And when I looked upon the terraces again, I saw that what he said was true, for among the sights before me were many things I had once seen through the mist beyond the horizon and in the phosphorescent depths of ocean. There too were forms and fantasies more splendid than any I had ever known, the visions of young poets who died in want before the world could learn what they had seen and dreamed. But we did not set foot upon the sloping meadows of Zar, for it is told that he who treads there may never more return to his native shore. As the white ship sailed silently away from the temple terraces of Zar, we beheld on the distant horizon ahead the spires of a mighty city, and the bearded man said to me, This is Salarion, the city of a thousand wonders, wherein reside all those mysteries that man has striven in vain to fathom. And I looked again at closer range and saw that the city was greater than any city I had known or dreamed of before. Into the sky the spires of its temples reached, so that no man might behold their peaks, and far back beyond the horizon stretched the grim gray walls, over which one might spy only a few roofs weird and ominous, yet adorned with rich friezes and alluring sculptures. I yearned mightily to enter this fascinating yet repellent city, and besought the bearded man to land me at the stone pier by the huge carven gate Akariel. But he gently denied my wish, saying, Into Thalarion, the city of a thousand wonders, many have passed, but none returned. Therein walk only demons and mad things that are no longer men, and the streets are white with the unburied bones of those who have looked upon the idol on Lathi that reigns over the city. So the white ship sailed on past the walls of Thalarion, and followed for many days a southward-flying bird whose glossy plumage matched the sky out of which it had appeared. Then came we to a pleasant coast gay with blossoms of every hue, where as far inland as we could see basked lovely groves and radiant arbors beneath a meridian sun. 
From bowers beyond our view came bursts of song and snatches of lyric harmony, interspersed with faint laughter so delicious, I urged the rowers onward in my eagerness to reach the scene. And the bearded man spoke no word, but watched me as we approached the lily-lined shore. Suddenly a wind blowing from over the flowery meadows and leafy woods brought a scent at which I trembled. The wind grew stronger, and the air was filled with the lethal charnel odor of plague-stricken towns and uncovered cemeteries. And as we sailed madly away from that damnable coast, the bearded man spoke at last, saying, This is Sura, the land of pleasures unattained. So once more the white ship followed the bird of heaven over warm, blessed seas fanned by caressing aromatic breezes. Day after day and night after night did we sail, and when the moon was full we would listen to soft songs of the oarsmen sweet as on that distant night when we sailed away from my far native land. And it was by moonlight we anchored at last in the harbor of Sonanil, which is guarded by twin headlands of crystal that rise from the sea and meet in a resplendent arch. This is the land of fancy, and we walked to the verdant shore upon a golden bridge of moonbeams. In the land of Sonanil there is neither time nor space, neither suffering nor death, and there I dwelt for many eons. Green are the groves and pastures, bright and fragrant the flowers, blue and musical the streams, clear and cool the fountains, and stately and gorgeous the temples, castles, and cities of Sonanil. Of that land there is no bound, for beyond each vista of beauty rises another more beautiful. Over the countryside and amidst the splendor of cities rove at will the happy folk, of whom all are gifted with unmarred grace and unalloyed happiness. For the eons that I dwelt there I wandered blissfully through gardens where quaint pagodas peep from pleasing clumps of bushes and where the white walks are bordered with delicate blossoms. I climbed gentle hills, from whose summits I could see entrancing panoramas of loveliness with steepled towns nestling in verdant valleys, and with the golden domes of gigantic cities glittering on the infinitely distant horizon. And I viewed by moonlight the sparkling sea, the crystal headlands, and the placid harbor wherein lay anchored the white ship. It was against the full moon one night in the immemorial year of Thorpe that I saw outlined the beckoning form of the celestial bird and felt the first stirrings of unrest. Then I spoke with the bearded man and told him of my new yearnings to depart for remote Cathuria, which no man hath seen, but which all believe to lie beyond the basalt pillars of the west. It is the land of hope, and in it shine the perfect ideals of all that we know elsewhere, or at least so men relate. And the bearded man said to me, Beware of those perilous seas wherein men say Cathria lies. In Sonanil there is no pain nor death, but who can tell what lies beyond the basalt pillars of the west? Natheless, at the next full moon I boarded the white ship and with the reluctant bearded man left the happy harbor for untraveled seas. And the bird of heaven flew before and led us toward the basalt pillars of the west, but this time the oarsmen sang no soft songs under the full moon. In my mind I would often picture the unknown land of Cathuria, with its splendid groves and palaces, and would wonder what new delights there awaited me. Cathuria, I would say to myself, is the abode of gods and the land of unnumbered cities of gold, its forests are of aloe and sandalwood, even as fragrant groves of camarin, and among the trees flood a gay bird sweet with song. On the green and flowery mountains of Cathuria stand temples of pink marble, rich with carven and painted glories, and having in their courtyards cool fountains of silver, where pearl with ravishing music the scented waters that come from the grotto-born river Nog. And the cities of Cathuria are cinctured with golden walls and their pavements are also of gold. In the gardens of these cities are strange orchids and perfumed lakes whose beds are of coral and amber. At night the streets and gardens are lit with gay lanterns fashioned from the three-colored shell of the tortoise, and here resound the soft notes of the singer and the lutenist, and the houses of the cities of Cathuria are all palaces, each built over a fragrant canal bearing the waters of the sacred nog. Of marble and porphyry are the houses, and roof with glittering gold that reflects the rays of the sun and enhances the splendor of the cities as blissful gods view them from the distant peaks. Fairest of all is the palace of the great monarch Dorieb, 
whom some say to be a demigod and others a god. High is the palace of Doriab, and many are the turrets of marble upon its walls. In its wide halls many multitudes assemble, and here hang the trophies of the ages, and the roof is of pure gold, set upon tall pillars of ruby and azure, and having such carven figures of gods and heroes that he who looks up to those heights seems to gaze upon the living Olympus. And the floor of the palace is of glass, under which flow the cunningly lighted waters of the Nog, gay with gaudy fish not known beyond the bounds of lovely Cathuria. Thus I would speak to myself of Cathuria, but ever would the bearded man warn me to turn back to the happy shores of Sonanil, for Sonanil is known of men, while none hath ever beheld Cathuria. And on the thirty-first day that we followed the bird, we beheld the basalt pillars of the west, shrouded in mist they were, so that no man might peer beyond them or see their summits, which indeed some say reach even to the heavens. And the bearded man again implored me to turn back, but I heeded him not, for from the mist beyond the basalt pillars I fancied there came the notes of a singer and lutinist, sweeter than the sweetest songs of Sonanil, and sounding my own praises, the praises of me who had voyaged far under the full moon and dwelt in the land of fancy. So to the sound of melody the white ship sailed into the mist betwixt the basalt pillars of the west. And when the music ceased and the mist lifted, we beheld not the land of Cathuria, but a swift, rushing, resistless sea over which our helpless bark was borne toward some unknown goal. Soon to our ears came the distant thunder of falling waters, and to our eyes appeared on the far horizon ahead the titanic spray of a monstrous cataract, wherein the oceans of the world would drop down to abysmal nothingness. Then did the bearded man say to me with tears on his cheek, We have rejected the beautiful land of Sonanil which we may never behold again. The gods are greater than men, and they have conquered. And I closed my eyes before the crash that I knew would come, shutting out the sight of the celestial bird, which flapped its mocking blue wings over the brink of the torrent. Out of that crash came darkness, and I heard the shrieking of men and of things which were not men. From the east, tempestuous winds arose and chilled me as I crouched on the slab of damp stone which had risen beneath my feet. Then, as I heard another crash, I opened my eyes and beheld myself upon the platform of that lighthouse from which I had sailed so many eons ago. In the darkness below there loomed the vast, blurred outlines of a vessel breaking up on the cruel rocks, and as I glanced out over the waste I saw that the light had failed for the first time since my grandfather had assumed its care. And in the later watches of the night, when I went within the tower, I saw on the wall a calendar which still remained as when I had left it at the hour I sailed away. With the dawn I descended the tower and looked for wreckage upon the rocks, but what I found was only this, a strange dead bird whose hue was that of the azure sky, and a single shattered spar of a whiteness greater than that of the wave tips or of the mountain snow. And thereafter the ocean told me its secrets no more. And though many times since has the moon shone full and high in the heavens, the white ship from the south came never again. That was H.P. Lovecraft's The White Ship, as read by J.K. Shepler. J.K. Shepler was born in Texas and raised in Northern California, among the rolling hills of the Coast Range and the Oaks of the Gold Country. He returned to Texas for secondary and post-secondary education. He attended the University of Houston, and someone decided to give him a Bachelor of Science degree with highest honors in anthropology. He was hyped to pursue a master's degree in experimental archaeology at Exeter, but decided to retire, thus sparing the British from his accents. He is a two-stripe brown belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu under Tony Torres Aponte, and haunts various local museums where he sometimes contributes to historical exhibitions, or simply loiters. He surfs, throws knives, and scratches out some visual art. He is slated to finish some creative projects sometime in this decade, 
including illustrating a children's book. And, if he ever wakes up, a bunch of other stuff. He sometimes sells fine woolen scarves and old ties, and somewhere people buy his t-shirt designs and photographs. He, ahem, rarely pens brief movie reviews which are written in some sort of bizarre dialect at downthemoviehole.blogspot.com. Mr. Shepler has opened for major touring acts in various bands, produced music videos, acted, and has been a general pain in the backside. He is fortunate to be the son of artist-educator parents, and for that he gives thanks. His parents gave him love and taught him to love learning and to be like the warriors and renaissance men and women of old, artistic, creative, thoughtful, honorable, capable, and well-armed. Thank you, JK. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Our second story this evening comes from Douglas Ford. Douglas Ford lives and works on the west coast of Florida, just off an exit made famous by a Jack Ketchum short story. His weird and dark fiction has appeared in Dark Moon Digest, Infernal Inc., and Weird City, along with several other small press publications. Recent work has appeared in The Best Hardcore Horror, Volumes 3 and 4, and a novella, The Reattachment, will appear later this year, courtesy of Madness Hard Press. In the harsh light of day, he sprinkles a little darkness into the lives of his students at the State College of Florida. And he lives with a hovawart, that's a kind of dog, who fiercely protects him from the unseen creatures in the wooded area next to his house. His five cats merely tolerate him, but his wife is decidedly fond of him, as he is of her. Join me, children of the night, for Douglas Ford's Wasps, a Tales to Terrify original. remembers more and more about the man who murdered his family. Everything else she forgets. Eventually, I suppose she won't even remember me. The murdered family lived in a corner of an otherwise quiet suburban neighborhood, and until she started remembering, my own recollection of the event had clouded over with time, until it had no more substance than the fairy tales told to me when I was young. No one lives in the house now. Decaying and forgotten, it has never, to my memory, held any long-term resident nor featured a for-sale sign in its overgrown lawn 
what realtors call a zombie house. There and not there at once. They had a little girl at the time. You know that, don't you? says Mom. As usual, we can't find her wallet, and she won't live without it. I say, never mind, I'll pay for that doctor, and we mustn't let this appointment slip by like last one. But she refuses to leave until we find it. I check in odd places, the refrigerator, the oven, a toolbox in the garage. As the dementia worsens, these places become all the more likely. She repeats what she said about the little girl. No, I don't remember, I say. They never found her. Not like his wife. They found her in the cement foundation of a warehouse. I pause in the act of opening a cabinet. Warehouse? Sure, the warehouse. Where he kept all the pool equipment. The pool-making business was how he made his money. Also why he knew ways of working with cement. No keys visible inside the cabinet. I pick up bottles of seasoning, most of them out of date. I can barely remember the days she recalls with so much detail. Just a child then, vaguely aware that the man living in that house committed some heinous act. We, the neighborhood kids, thought he stole something. So we designated him the thing we thought the very worst. A robber. Because we didn't yet know more terrible possibilities existed. A robber lives there. I remember one of my friends running toward me, shouting, pointing toward the man as he carried groceries into his house. There he is, the robber. Our parents hushed us. But like mockingbirds, we sang this word, robber out to one another in wild abandon, hardly able to believe that such a thing lived amongst us, the robber. I finally find Mom's wallet in a canister that once seemed to hold sugar. Or salt. I can't tell which. Of course, the doctor can do nothing to stop Mom's dementia. Eventually, it will obliterate all memory, everything that makes her, her. I mention the recent memories that have begun resurfacing with such alarming clarity. The doctor clicks her tongue as she considers what I say. The whole brain thing is a mystery, she says, full of phantoms that pop up when you least expect. But so much of it has the ring of truth, I say. I'm thinking this could be a sign she's getting better, right? You don't just get better from this the doctor says. Then she asked me to relate these memories, and I lie, saying something about how she's begun recalling family vacations, extravagant travels that we took together. She listens with an unreadable expression, so my story becomes more elaborate, as if winning the doctor's trust and favor will affect Mom's fate. I tell her about a cousin I didn't have, a girl my age, how we pretended we were sisters and how we would play in her room after a long swim in her grand backyard swimming pool. The doctor offers no comment when I'm finished, just smiles sadly, and I almost admit the lie. I should just say, oh, she's just remembering the murderer who once lived in our neighborhood, someone who I only vaguely remember myself, thought I may have even made it all up, but now, without any prompting from me, she's remembering all of it. Can't stop her from talking about it. But I refrain, and the doctor clicks her tongue as if chiding me. She says, Maybe it wouldn't hurt if you could encourage it. Try to draw her into conversation. Exercise for the brain, you know. I nod. I don't want to talk about this anymore. Anything else but this. But when all else is erased, What will remain of us? Mom lives on her own, in the same house she lived in when she got married, the same house where she raised me as her only daughter, the same house where she outlived my father once he succumbed to cancer. For years, I promised myself that once I reached adulthood, I would live as far away as possible, 
someplace cold and without butterflies. Butterflies obsess my mother. She nurtures their chrysalises like precious gems in her backyard, studies their fluttering amongst her flowers once they emerge. And now she calls me, grief-stricken, sobbing. There's a monarch just sitting there. He's not moving. There's something wrong. I think there's something inside him. Instead of living thousands of miles distant, I live only blocks away. A betrayal to my younger self, and I have no excuses. I certainly can't think of one when she asked me again to come over. It's just a butterfly, I say, thinking of when she called to tell me that my father died. I don't remember her sounding as grieved as she does now. There's something eating it, from the inside, I think. Moments later, I find myself in the car, driving past the parking lot of a new Italian restaurant where someone has installed a big electronic sign. Don't panic, the sign says in bright letters. It changes too slowly for me to see what comes next. I want to know why I shouldn't panic. Or perhaps that was the whole message. Don't panic. Briefly, I wonder if I've left the oven on or perhaps failed to lock the door. When would my brain begin to slip the way hers did? Maybe I would burn in a fire first or get murdered in my sleep. I don't even remember getting into the car and turning on the ignition. When I arrive, Mom takes me to a tree branch where a majestic butterfly sits perfectly still, not even a light breeze to make him sway. Do you see it? Mom says. I lean in for a better view. Something seems to pulse beneath the creature's surface. It's just breathing, I want to say, but... No, something about the irregular, scattered pulsing seems unnatural. Do you see it? Mom says, so I lean closer. Yes, something like holes in the surface of the butterfly's body its wings marked by bold oranges, yellows, and blacks, a miracle of evolution. Accept this growing realization. It isn't alive. Mom says, maybe you shouldn't get to... But something happens and I don't hear her finish the sentence. Or maybe she does finish and I just can't hear. Perhaps the sudden splitting of the butterfly's body makes a sound or the buzzing of the newly hatched insects suddenly spewing from the carcass of the butterfly. A thing hollowed out from the inside blots out the sound. Or maybe I'm just screaming too loud. Parasites, Mom says. Wasps, to be exact. They plant themselves inside the body and gestate. She sits across from me after pouring two tumblers with gin, setting one in front of me. I drink faster than she does, and she refills my cup before I can ask. You always get too close to things, she says. You told me to. For a moment, she looks genuinely befuddled, even concerned. I would never, ever tell you to get too close to something dangerous. But you always do. You never listen. That's why I had to go get you out of that house. My turn for confusion. Mom sips her gin, looks towards the rear porch. I want to go look at the butterfly. He hasn't moved in days. She's already somewhere else. I try to pull her back. What house, Mom? Tell me what you mean. She tilts her head in my direction a frown forming. For a moment, she can't place me. If I asked her to say my name, she would search her ravaged brain and never find it. Yet the story she tells me comes through with unexpected, intense clarity, remembered as if happening right before her eyes. You never listen. We tell you not to run to your little friends, pointing at him and saying, The robber, the robber, like you can't imagine a worse crime. 
but much worse things happen. Already the rumors started circulating, and the police finally visited one night, interrupting dinner. The officer stood in the rain, all business, even though we invited him inside. He wanted to know if we'd seen anything suspicious at all at the house on the corner, anything at all unusual, people coming and going at odd hours. A woman, maybe, packing her bags and leaving with a little girl. Maybe you heard the part about the little girl because you appeared suddenly behind your father and the officer gave you a funny look, like you reminded him of something, something that twisted his gut. He asked us if we let you go outside on your own. Sure, I said. He frowned and said to keep an eye on you, but he wouldn't say why. The next day, you went running toward your little friend. We'd just come home from running some errands and I barely let you out of the car before you started running and pointing at the man with that robber, robber business. He heard you too, having come back, I guess, from his own errands. And he turned to see where the voice was coming from. I hustled you inside as fast as I could, you along with your little friend. I tried not to scare you, but I told you both to stay inside. I thought you would. I never heard the door open. I never heard you leave. I just lost track of time, I guess, and when I went to check on you, I found an empty room. You even put away all your toys, cleaning up like you didn't plan on returning. That's what made me panic, the order of the room. You never put things away. For a terrible moment, I thought I had imagined you, that you never really existed. What would I tell the police? They would lock me away just for thinking that. Call it what you want, insanity or neglect. I didn't call the police for help because of that. I scoured the neighborhood. I knocked on every door. Neighbors looked at me, stunned. Many of them I'd never met before, and suddenly there I stood in their doorway, bug-eyed and mad. I couldn't remember what clothes you wore. When I tried the house of your little friend, I thought sure I would finally found you. But your little friend hid behind her mother's leg and watched me fearfully, certain I had gotten her in trouble. When her mother asked her if she'd been playing with you, she shook her head slowly, watching me the whole time. I called her a liar and turned on my heel, walked to the edge of the sidewalk, the tears coming hard now. One more house to check, the one I dreaded. His. I know how that house looks now, run down and empty, grass growing waist high. Back then it looked perfect, manicured, but it still appeared haunted somehow. I stood frozen at the end of the walkway, afraid, and I won't lie. I considered going away, pretending you never existed, just so I wouldn't have to knock on the door. But a different fear moved me, knowing that eventually someone would say something. Someone would notice, and the mad mother would become the neglectful mother. And where would I end up? Jail? So I got close enough to knock. I'd never spoken to a murderer before, least of all this one. At that point, I guess he was just what they call a person of interest. Just a husband whose family had gone missing. I knew he heard you calling out, There's a robber living there. He saw you point saw you, and saw me. I noticed his eyebrows first, what I couldn't see in the distance. Do you know the folklore about werewolves? How their eyebrows meet in the middle of the forehead? When he answered, I saw those eyebrows and lost the power of speech. A wolf had you and I'd never get you back. He smiled, but not with his eyes. Just his teeth. She's here, he said, and he stepped aside so I could come in. I decided then that whatever fate you suffered, I deserved to join you. Like Little Red Riding Hood, I accepted his invitation. I acquiesced to his wishes. I suppose I should have thought myself the huntsman, but we both share the same red hair, you know. Inside... Everything appeared neatly placed. Coasters on the coffee table, the floor vacuumed. 
She's just playing, he said, in my daughter's room. He beckoned me down a dark hallway, and it all seemed so normal at first, just a normal hallway with pictures on the wall, a gallery of his dead family, all smiling in normal poses. I focused so hard on the pictures that it took me a moment to notice what was wrong. No rooms. The hallway led nowhere. Just a tight enclosed space, and pretty soon we found ourselves at the end of it, and with no signs of you. I thought I'd reached the end of everything. My life, your life, all of it. But he held up his index finger, just like he had an idea. An inspiration for a new invention. And that smile only grew as he took that upraised finger and turned it the other way. So he was pointing at the ground. That way, he said. I looked, and sure enough, I could see a crude hole down there like something created by pounding the drywall with a sledgehammer. I had to crawl to get through, so I got down on my hands and knees and made my way through the grit and dirty until I could stand up on the other side of the wall. I found myself in another hallway, but this one had normal doorways. He appeared over my shoulder and pointed toward the room on the end. You sat in the middle of the floor surrounded by boy band posters and stuffed animals. Something in your hand I couldn't see. I watched her real good for you, the murderer said. He leaned against the doorframe. I said nothing, still not daring to breathe. I picked you up and held you. I should have unclenched your hands to see what you held, but I just waited for what he would do next. Instead, He continued to gaze. I watched her good, he said again. I turned and we regarded one another for a moment until he moved aside. Holding you, I walked past him into a hallway and wondered how I'd crawl through that hole again with you in my arms, but somehow this hallway was different. Another part of the house, I suppose. I wondered how far this house extended, the vast amount of ground it must have covered. I thought it was no bigger than ours, but fortunately this hallway led to the front of the house and its walls consisted of the same arrangement of photos, so I must have imagined that hole in the wall and the absence of doors before. Trauma will do that to you. As I walked down the hallway, I could feel him breathing, just a few steps behind us. His presence, always there, until we reached the front door. Holding you, I couldn't reach the doorknob. I had no choice but to stop and wait and see if he would open it. I would have started begging if he hadn't reached around me and turned the doorknob. A big intake of breath came from him as he did so, as if he wanted to smell us, memorize our scent before letting us leave, anticipating a time when he would have to track us down, even though he already knew where we lived. The door didn't close behind us, and I could feel him there, watching us as we walked home, letting us go while maintaining that toothy smile. Home, I checked you, for bites, for scratches. The whole time you didn't blink, as if in shock, your hands clutching whatever it was you held. Do you remember the rabbit we kept in the backyard and how a dog got hold of him one day? He had the rabbit's legs in his jaws and was pulling him into the shade when we saw him. We managed to free him and chase the dog away, and when we took the rabbit inside, we thought he'd died, though we couldn't find any scratches on him. He laid still and unblinking for several hours. I wrapped him in a blanket, just like I wrapped you, and suddenly, like magic, he snapped out of it and started moving again. You would be like that rabbit, I hoped. Eventually, I managed to pry your fingers apart and see what you held. A finger with dried blood. A girl's finger with red polished fingernail on one end and a white sliver of bone on the other. Even though you didn't blink or speak, you still didn't want to surrender it. I could have done many things. One of them, the most obvious, call the police. But how could I face that officer? They would send him, of course. And how would I answer his questions? How would I explain this? 
that I had let you go to that man's house to play? We would become involved, maybe even accomplices. Besides, they would arrest him soon. That seemed like a certainty. They would find the rest of the girl inside that house, maybe inside the closet of that room you sat in. No one, I thought, would question the missing finger. So I buried it, outside, under that tree where the butterfly died, eaten alive by wasps. I think that's what killed it, what caused the butterfly dying, frozen like that, just like you. But they never found the girl, and I think I know why. She's still there, inside that house, hidden in a wall, and if I just said something, maybe they would have found her. As if a light extinguishing itself, Mom's eyes go glassy. She looks at him, and in that instant I sense she has stopped recognizing me, as if lightning bugs made up her secret and once they flew away, they left her an empty husk. I go outside and look at the tree, the remains of the butterfly still fixed to its branch. Just a grave now. The flowers she has planted around it make me feel sick. I pass the police station several times before returning home, but I never stop. Angry, I resolve to let Mom just dry up inside her old house. For days, I don't call, nor do I answer when she does. I feel no guilt. I don't know this woman, I tell myself. I never have, not really. But I don't know myself either. Not anymore. That feeling nags me, and the resolve not to call evaporates. When I do, no one answers. I try again with the same result. Again and again, nothing. Panic sets in. Again, do I go to the police? I know I sound like her, and that almost decides things for me. But for what purpose? Reveal a secret that results in the arrest of an old woman with dementia? So I return. On Easter Sunday, no less. A day my mother used to insist I wear frilled dresses and take me to church. I don't know the day until I pass the electronic sign. Now it says, He has risen. I resolve to never, ever eat in that establishment. Mom doesn't answer her door. I half expect a man to answer, maybe the cop who showed up years ago to warn her not to let me outside to keep close watch. Maybe a man with eyebrows meeting in the middle of his forehead, smiling with his teeth. But the door remains closed, so I use my key. Inside, I encounter a vacant home. Everything as I left it days ago. Mom's tumbler of gin in the same place with a small ring of liquid at the bottom. I dip my finger inside it. Cold. In the backyard, the tree and butterfly remain, stubborn and undisturbed. At that moment, I know where she has gone. At first, the door to the house in the corner won't budge. A secured bolt, I first assume, but a nudge with my shoulder proves that it's only humidity and swollen wood. It swings wide, and I brace myself to see a man whose eyebrows meet in the middle, but only dust motes greet me, as well as a darkness unaccustomed to the disturbances of light. The furniture looks angry and confused, as if awakened from a long sleep. I think again of what they call this kind of home, a zombie and the dated upholstery reminds me of the clothes on a dead man's back. Light streaming through the open door leads me to the hallway, and from there, I know where to go. Pictures hang on the hallway walls. A woman and a child. A vacation at a beach somewhere, but they don't look happy. The girl looks familiar, though. Every door is closed, and I suppose it's possible in this darkness to think there are no doors, no rooms. The one at the hallway's end stands open, and I know where I will find Mom. Before I can reach it, I hear breathing and turn around. Mom? 
I encounter only empty space. Then something tickles the hairs on the back of my neck, like someone trying to catch my scent. I should want to run, to leave. But I find the strength in a whispered phrase. I am the huntsman. Another stab of familiarity when I enter the room. Details trying to press through. Had my mother mentioned a white desk and red lamp? A bedside table covered with teen magazines? These memories can't belong to me, and yet I recognize these things. No little girl in the middle of the floor. That girl, an adult now, stands in the doorway, still feeling the hot breath on her neck. She'd hope to find the old woman there, but the room doesn't contain that kind of presence. A scratching sound, then a low buzz. Its source inexact, but my eyes find the louvered doors of the closet. I remember now. I'll find her in there. Despite the empty space in the closet, the buzzing grows louder. It comes from behind gray drywall. The presence at my back tries to slow me down as I search the rest of the house. It knows what I intend to find, something sharp and heavy. It climbs my back, scratches me. It tries to slow me down with its weight, but it can't stop me from finding the trowel I know I will find. The tool he used to smooth the plaster all those years ago. With the pointed end, I stab into the wall, cracking the plaster, opening a hole into it as bit by bit pieces fall away. Like opening the belly of the wolf, I tell myself to find the little girl and her grandmother inside. The buzzing grows louder. When I see her, I speed up my effort, until I clear enough away to see that she holds something gray and torn in her arms. She looks up, no recognition in her eyes. Her skin is torn and bruised, the result of crawling into passageways not large enough for her. No other explanation will suffice when I tell this story. How else could she arrive here? In this spot, I say my own name, hoping she'll know me. Your daughter, I say. But she shakes her head and looks down at her lap, and I see the wreckage of skeletal limbs, still wearing ragged clothing, and the eyeless skull with a few sparse strands of red hair. This is my daughter, she says. She came here and never came out. I reach in for her, but she thinks I intend to take the corpse from her. She shrinks back, her grip tightening. The struggle causes the dead jaw to fall open, and I learn then of the source of the buzzing. Wasps, a swarm of them, fly from the corpse's mouth. They fill the room, defending their disturbed home, defending my mother, and as I wave my arms to guard my face, my body, I can still see her hunched in that crawl space, unmoving. They are her children, these wasps, born out of lost memories. And she will never again recall my name. That was Douglas Ford's Wasps, as read by Summer Brooks. Summer Brooks is a bit of a television addict and enjoys putting her sci-fi media geek skills to good use in interviewing guests. She has been a co-host for Slice of Sci-Fi for 2005. From 2005 to 2009, the co-host for the Babylon podcast from 2006 to 2012, and host of Kick-Ass Mythic Ninjas before returning to Slice of Sci-Fi full-time as host and producer in August 2014. 
She is an avid reader and writer of sci-fi, fantasy, and thrillers, with a handful of publishing credits to her name. Next on her agenda is writing an urban fantasy tale and a B-movie monster extravaganza. Currently, Summer designs and maintains websites for clients, in addition to having fun with the Slice of Sci-Fi website, and also does voiceovers and narrations for Tales to Terrify, Starship Sofa, and Escape Pod, among others. Thank you, Summer. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. If you haven't already, it would be amazing if you'd support us on Patreon, or even via PayPal on our website. Tales to Terrify is free to listen to, but it isn't free to produce. There's many of us that pour a lot of love and effort into this podcast every week, and a small donation goes a long way. Go to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, or donate via PayPal through the link near the bottom of our homepage, talestoterrify.com. Also, like us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews are instrumental in helping us spread the word and slide deep into the ears and minds of new listeners. Our show is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini. With theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we draw you down into darkness with more Tales to Terrify. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.